interesting to people because it's a bit like having a chat with one of your mates and it's a bit like being in on that chat and that's quite unusual isn't it is so much you know if I went to if I was going to go and do a presentation at a bike show or something like that never been invited to do such a thing but you know if I was I'd be I'd be scripting that and I'd be thinking about what I want to say and it's just yeah it's much more are you recording now yeah you just sort of chuck that in there yeah, I don't like to. I said, like I said, I don't like to tell people, but I thought that was a really good start point. Well, that's fair enough. Well, yeah. if we were doing, if I was doing a presentation, you'd script it, and then you'd, you'd obviously say what you want to say. I think, I think these things come, come to life a bit better because you just do go off on a tangent. And you just do say whatever you want to say. Yeah, it's much more natural at the end of the day. It's like, so I've said, I've covered it a few times in previous podcasts. I don't tend to tell people when. I'm going to start recording because I like it to feel much more natural. And it's exactly that. So you're, and with, with all of these, I've always wanted it to be very unedited and very honest. So it is like just you're sitting in, in a conversation, like you said earlier. Uh, but now I've started recording, I'll do the, well, that, the normal. That was quite devious because I asked you like 30 seconds ago if this is being recorded and you said, oh, no, 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 it's fine. And then I looked up and I'm 51 seconds into a record. Yeah, well, it's because you didn't. I started it when you started saying, talking about it being like a, a chat in a pub. That's when I started it. Yeah, um, because that, I was like, that's a really good place to start. And that, every single, almost, I think pretty much every single podcast I've started like that because I think it's much nicer that I like it when people don't necessarily realise that it started as well. And I've found having done a few now is that some people when they then realise it started, they're like, oh, okay, cool, we'll just carry on. And it, it sort of gets away with that um, awkwardness, I think. Yeah, Everyone uh, know now, so you're going to have to think of other devious ways to trick people. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got I've got tons of ideas. Like, I can always think of ideas and things like that. Um, some people definitely do spend a lot of time staring at the, the squiggly lines in the screen. So I reckon some people are very switched on to when it does start. But, like, the one that I... I did one a while ago where I got my friend who runs a podcast to basically interview me. Yeah. And, uh, and obviously he, he uses this program that I use as well to record. So he's like hyper aware when I started recording and uh, he's, and he runs a very like legit, quite professional sounding podcast. So he's proper like on top of it way more than me. Um, and so as soon as he saw it started recording, he's like, hello and welcome to the podcast. And I was like, Oh, Stefano, you're so, you're too good at podcasts. <laughs> well, my laptop uh, is extremely pro. I've got the laptop on top of a cushion because I figured that might isolate any fidgeting from me. Or you know. so I'm I'm not recording this in my usual spot. I'm sitting on a bed on my laptop. I've so. seen the microphone though. That is super pro. That is. I haven't got the microphone here though. <laughs> I'm right. using laptop speakers because <laughs> I was using my headphones, but they weren't connecting up. But yeah, oh well. So. This is episode 10 now, which is pretty crazy to think, actually. That yeah, 10... when we first discussed it, you you said, I've just done a couple, I'm going to see how it goes, and then I'm, I'm next on the list. That's good, though, because there's a few more listeners now, I reckon. There was only two or three on the first one, I reckon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's been crazy, like, to get to 10 episodes in, and I've been chucking them out twice a week, which is, that's bonkers in its own right, to think that, um, like, like, I'm keeping on top of that as well, and it's... Uh, twice a week and I'm, I'm trying to with the whole like my laptop dying I managed to have enough of a backup to keep it on that twice a week a week rhythm 
but now I've run out of backup, so I'm playing catch up again. But uh, yeah, so I've got Andy Carr, Mr. Spoon, on the other side of the line. Yeah, the... yes, it's a line. Yeah, it is a line. To be fair, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's this squiggly line in the middle of the screen that I'm now hypnotised by. Oh, mate, I can, I stare at it all the time. It's terrible, isn't it? And also, like, have you seen like those uh, when people like do like videos for like social media when it's podcast related and there's just like the sound bars on it as well? I just stare at the sound bars. <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. You've, you've hit the timing's really good because obviously everybody sat at home and just wants to be out and wants to be talking to the mates about cycling. So the idea that we can have a little have a little chat and get a load of people involved in that is kind of cool. Um, yeah. I've been looking forward to it all day, just thinking, yeah, I'll oh. bikes later. I'm just not seeing anybody. You know? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Like, and do you know what? I What I've found really nice is like, I'm just getting to talk to loads of people at the moment. So I'm not feeling like stressed out about being on my own or anything at any points, if that makes sense. Because yeah, totally. I'm getting to have really like nice and informative conversations, which is, which in the current climate is great, actually. Like you don't necessarily expect that to be quite as easy. I mean, it's not necessarily been easy, but it's been an absolute bonus for me to be able to do that, definitely. So let's talk bikes. Yes. We like bikes. As I say this, I'm plugging my laptop in um, because I realised I should have done that earlier. But hey, hey. Um, Well, mine's not plugged in, so we've got 78%. Oh, Can we do it? Can we get to it? I was on 13. Oh, okay. Well, if you're a pro and you turned up with 13% battery, I feel like 77, 77, I'm crikey, it's going down quite quickly. So, we'll... <laughs> so you, where are you based now? I'm still based in Brighton at, you know, because of the coronavirus thing, but um, yeah. Putnam in Surrey. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're, but that's not too bad a track, is it really, from Brighton not to Surrey? Bad. No, it's about an hour and hour and 10, hour and 15. I'll move yeah. up at some point when we're allowed to move around again. Um, <laughs> have you been to the workshop? Have you been to the paint shop? No, I haven't. No, it's really... I really want to. It's right at the, it's at the top of a little hill, down a little lane, and um, it goes out onto, literally out of the back of the workshop. You can just go straight out and onto the common on a Friday night and go for a ride. And there's loads of little mountain bike trails and really cool little bits. And Luke, who works in the paint shop, has been um, digging some really nice little trails down this heather that are going to be really good in the summer. But we can't, we can't really go there at the moment. It's sort of shut. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Sam and Luke and David are all at home. Um, we're using the furlough thing, which has been a godsend, really. Mm. And um, we're just waiting for things to kick off again. Yeah. yeah be- what are you thinking is going to happen with that? Have you got a. Are you literally playing it by ear or are you... Well, we had to... We got word of it pretty early, like most people in the bike business, I guess, because you start getting a bit worried about when things are going to arrive, um, particularly with something like we do, because people obviously wait quite a long time to get a custom bike. We have to make everything. Um, so China, obviously, was the first sort of area that had the problems, and we started looking at things like um, wheel rims and things like that, and we had some problems getting hold of some Venn stuff. And then obviously that triggered conversations with Gianluca in Italy and just trying to figure out what would happen if we had any problems over here. And then obviously all the problems just turned up almost overnight. And um, we stopped production on April 3rd. 
Yeah. Um, when the Italian government announced the uh, announced the change in strategy, and they just said, "Look, Lombardy, um, Northern Italy, that's where it's all at." But the whole thing just needs to close down now. So, um, so that's where that's where the factory is, isn't it? Yeah. So Padova, we've got two workshops in Padova. So yeah, about six seven miles apart, and um, obviously they're they're small family businesses. We've only got a few people at each. But yeah. my big concern was one of them getting ill, obviously. And then, I mean, Alberto's quite, he's not elderly. He wouldn't thank me for saying that, but he's in the, um, he's in one of the riskier groups, age group wise. So yeah. your first fear is like, what happens if, you know, we lose, lose one of the team. And then you immediately start then thinking about what you're going to do about production and things. But we kept an eye on it for a while and just, it felt like everything was going to be okay. And it felt like we could still go to work. But then you watch the cases going up and down and then they just put a stop on. There is a sort of inevitability to it, I, I guess, but then they just put a stop on all manufacturing. But um, I don't want to speak too soon, but the curve is flattening over there, I think. Um, and it looks like they might be able to go back to work next week. So um, Next week? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've had, we've got several suppliers that provide various bits and pieces and parts and stuff. And we've had a couple of, couple of people saying that they think they're going to be allowed back to work next week in some sort of limited way um so i'm going to guess that will be a, a reduced workforce um and only like key more more key workers i'm guessing we've got, we've got one person that does each job and they're experts at their job so nobody else can do it so we've got four people at each workshop basically yeah four key people and then two or three two or three other people doing sort of sweeper roles if you like um yeah so and they're big factories. Um, Italian space, industrial space, isn't as expensive as it is here. So workshops tend to be quite big. Um, you've got lots of you've got lots of plant as well, lots of um, mills and what have you. So each person does tend to work in a fairly separate area of the factory, if that makes sense. So we're hoping yeah. we can find a safe way of working. Obviously, safety is the first thing we worry about. But then, if we can do it, we'll be back at work as soon as possible, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's such a weird weird world right now isn't it like it's just hard to really understand what the best tactic is on everything like and everyone like we're, we're recording this on good friday and it is like it's glorious here in the uk today um but uh you know my my concern especially over this long weekend is that people are going to not uh adhere to the advice and there's going to be you know I've I've already seen messages in some of the like WhatsApp groups that I'm in of people who've gone to the shops in the morning, for example, and or gone out on a solo ride because we're still allowed to do solo rides or riding with who you live with here. They're still allowed. I've seen I, one of the guys said to me he went out uh, on the solo ride this morning and he saw a group of six riders congregating in club jerseys in a car park. I mean, what the fuck? Like, come on. I mean, and he was like, they had like two water bottles on their bike, like they, and it was quite early, so they were clearly going out for a long bike ride. Like, it's just so like selfish, and it's it's, a, it's just a bit, it's a bit of a dick move, isn't it? If you're gonna, if you're gonna, like, we've all we've all tried to use the rules or stick within the spirit of the rules, and we all obviously have to go about our day to day as best as we can. So I'm sure we've all probably gone to the shops more than once or or some of the other things where there's where there's been a need and um yeah. i i just think you do that because that's how 
that's how you make the the situation work for you, I suppose, in some sort of selfish way. But you just don't. We can't be doing the things we used to do, and we can't be going out in club jerseys. That's just got to be. Surely, like instinctively, you just think to yourself, "No, nah, this is this is a bit daft, isn't it? We're all wearing the same gear. We all obviously don't live in the same house." Yeah, I mean, I think maybe um, common sense is something that some people lack. Um, clearly, more so than others, I guess. Um, but like on the flip side, there, I know it sounds weird to say, like it's a tough, it's a tough situation. It's definitely something that has been widely spoken about on many of the episodes of this podcast because it's what the situation we're currently in um but there are there's a there are positives that have come from it like you look at um i saw something that's saying it's the first time in some crazy amount of years that india from somewhere i can't remember where in india but you've been able to see the himalayan yeah i saw that that's mind-blowing and the dolphins, yeah. and dolphins in the rivers and stuff like that there yeah, I saw. I said this in another podcast, but we I saw a seal in the Thames last oh. weekend. Like, how often can you say you've ever seen a seal in the Thames like that? I mean, I mean, yeah. actually, I lie. He wasn't in the Thames. He was on the bank next to the Thames. But... Just chilling out. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of cool, isn't it? I hope. I hope. Like, obviously, there's a lot of pain for a lot of people, and I'm in a situation whereby. Um, I've had to send staff home and all that sort of stuff. There's a few challenges there, but they're not challenges associated with, you know, I'm not, my life isn't at risk at this point. Um, yeah, exactly. My family and friends are safe and, and that's all obviously, it's not like that for lots of other people. And I suppose I've got to remind myself that that's the case, but um, I do feel optimistic about what might come after, even if we have to have some changes and even if we have to, um, you know, make make some adjustments. What might come after might just be a bit more. I feel a bit more thoughtful at the moment. I feel a bit more like we're taking. I'm appreciating things. I've cleaned the garden out the last couple of weeks and just getting outside in in that space that we've always had but never really used. Just seems, yeah. Seems like a really lovely positive, if that makes sense. There's, Mate, I spent I spent about an hour and a half yesterday cleaning bikes, and I really enjoyed it. I never normally enjoy that. We've got time as well. It's sort of, I mean, it's a bit like, I hope, uh, obviously, this podcast lasts a long, long time. But at the moment, people have got time to sit and listen to it. Yeah. I feel like we've got time to reflect on things. We're not, for the for those of us that aren't in an emergency situation, we've just got time to sit and think and work stuff out. And I had, obviously, a fair bit of stress associated with what we were going to do if we had to tell customers we couldn't finish their bikes on the, you know, dates or on the, even the week or month when they were expecting them, every every single person just said, look, we know what's going on. We understand the situation. You know, this is like, this is bigger than you. Don't yeah. About it. And since since customers have come back and said, no, we've got this, we're, we're all right, we understand. It's been a, it's been really useful to just then have that pressure released, if you like. We're able to just sit and think about the brand and think about how things land with people. Think about like, what we're doing for customers at every step along the way so they can have a really good time, not just a good time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is that there's a, I mean, there's a hell of a lot of positives to take from the situation and the reflection time is, is a really good thing to think about. Like I, I, I had a similar thing, not nowhere near to the scale of you, but my, I designed a, a zero lemon Jersey, which I basically, I just, I did it cause I, I really wanted to, I just wanted to do it. And I sort of said to people, 
It's available. It'll be pre-order only. Um, it's this much. This is going to cost this much, and it's going to take some time to get delivered because it's pre-order. But if you want one, let me know. You know, put it out there very simply and very honestly, and it's sold really well, really, really well actually, um, which was very, very flattering. But uh, it's being made by my friends at Atticus, and obviously the the factory that they work with is Northern Italy as well. Same scenario been completely closed down so i had to uh, they updated me on that and i had to then email everyone that purchased one sort of saying this is the situation this is what everything that we know i'm really sorry on my side and every single like i probably got that that list of emails there's quite a few people on it i think i've got five responses and the, the people that replied the people that didn't reply obviously like okay cool it's great i've got an update but the people that did go went out of their way to reply were like don't worry at all, completely understand. And it's really nice when people do that. It definitely helps. Well, it's just, otherwise, it's just, I had a list of 20 people that had to be called that day when we found, well, we didn't call them that day, actually. We had a bit of a chat internally and tried to work out what we were going to do. Mm. Um, agreed agreed a bit of an approach, really, although it was changing every day at that point. And then yeah. we called everybody, and I just thought, this is going to be a horrible day. I've just got to call all these people and tell them it's not not happening the way it was. And everyone was like, this isn't important or it is important, but you know, there's so many other things and it was just so nice. On the scale of importance, it's low still. Because you you definitely don't want, you definitely don't want 20 people just saying, oh, okay, cool. Can have my money back then. That's just, that's a really difficult situation for a small business. Um, Mm. But you've got to accept that in that sort of circumstance, that could have been what all of them said. And it was just, it was just so lovely for them all to just say, no, you know, we've, we're all in this together. We're just going to wait and see what happens and, you know, keep us up to date and then we'll see how we feel in a few months. And I was just like, wow, okay. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been nice to reflect on that and just sort of think, okay, so the people we work with are pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> How do we find these people? So you're, yeah, they're few and far between, aren't they? So you're, how how things are with you you so you started spoon customs but you're also now running windy miller so two bike brands two uh, there is similarities definitely on the fact that they're both custom bike brands uh both working in different materials yeah um how the how have you in first of all why is spoon called spoon because i i don't know the answer to that and i would love to know that uh let's start with that one yeah, I, I thought I might have told you that before, but that's a little bit. I I told James Spender once at Circus Magazine, um, mm-hmm. asked me the same question, and um, you know the whole "is this on the record, off the record" type thought that you have whenever you speak to a journalist. We were just yeah. a friendly chat, and he said, "Why is it called Spoon Customs?" And I said, "Well, I love spoons, don't I?" And he, <laughs> <laughs> I went, "Don't print that, of course." And then he he did an article. It came out months later. It was a lovely article. It was really lovely. It just it told all the little bits that you'd want to tell if you could write these things yourself. And then at the end, it says, why did you call it Spoon? And then it says, in inverted commas, a quote from me saying, well, I just love spoons, don't I? But <laughs> um, <laughs> the actual name Spoon was a bit, I sort of took it back because it was a nickname at school and I didn't like it. And it was one of those things that just stuck. And um, when you're sort of chasing around for a name for these things, this started off obviously a little less serious than it now is. And when you're chasing around for a name, you're trying to think of something that's relevant or not too, not too generic or whatever else. And a lot of bike companies are named after the owner. They're eponymous. 
yeah last name is car so i can't i couldn't have car bikes right so it would be quite funny though pardon it would have been quite funny still yeah yeah well maybe maybe spoon i just thought spoon was going to work better so spoon customs is it's nothing to do with teaspoons it's nothing to do with um my love for spoons although the actual name did come about because i was a bit of a perfectionist i think with um producing some of the condiments that we supplied at one of my first jobs which was a chip shop and um, there was a chap there called rob taylor who um stuck a post-it note to my back that said i love spoons or something yeah i was spending way too much time stirring the gravy to get the lumps out <laughs> and, uh, they stuck this, this post-it note to my back and it was on there for the entire shift and then the name just never went away so it's just one of those things that's just followed me around forever and i thought i'll just take it back i'll own it it'll be my be my thing and um, the customs half of it is a bit of a nod to the sort of american hot rod scene and sort of custom motorcycle scene yeah because nice. they, were, they were sort of phrasing things like that a long time before we were and I, some there's something about the bikes that is um my idea of a sort of garage built hot rod i suppose the paint and the deep candies and the metallics and that sort of stuff they just remind me of those things quite deliberately so um, nice. I just think that'd be a nice nod to that it's a really. It's. Just, I. I just like the name. I think the name. I. I mean. I like the story to it, and I, I like hearing like people's stories to reasons why they've called brands certain thing. Like similarly, um, I asked the guys at Atticus why it's called Atticus, and the story. I. I. I kind. I knew it like loosely. Like I knew that it's named after the Atticus moth, but I didn't understand. I never had asked why is it named after the Atticus moth, and I got that story, and I was just like. It's a good story, actually. It's quite funny. Um, but he, when you hear that kind of side of it, it definitely, like, it just, uh, I always feel like a brand name should be personal to you, not to anyone else. And, like, if you have to explain it, fine. It doesn't matter. Like, if you yeah, don't, it's be fine. It has to be, it's got to be ownable in a sense, but it's also got to be something that you you have some recall on and you can, well, you can remember. I mean, the first few times you say it, obviously it sounds odd because you've, you've just invested a whole load of time and, energy into thinking about this thing and then you've got to show it to the world and you've got to tell everybody what it's called and yeah. I thought um that would be harder than it was it felt uncomfortable at the time I had to get used to saying it I had to get used to saying yeah you know it's called Spoon Customs you sort of have to get your head around that pretty quickly because then you hear people yeah. like you said at the top um Mr Spoon which is you know hilarious to me and everybody <laughs> but when you go to shows that's what people think your name is and it's just, yeah it's great it's sort of a fun side of it and ultimately we're making toys so it sort of sort of makes sense that it shouldn't be called you know on the apprentice when everybody gets asked to pick a name it was yeah. something like vanquish and i'm just that's terrible i couldn't with i couldn't with a straight face have written vanquish or i can't even think of any of the words that might have been written on one of our down tubes but i just couldn't have had anything that took itself too seriously I just don't think bikes are, in some respects, to be taken that seriously. Obviously, we take fabrication really seriously, finish really seriously. All of the things that we do, we take really seriously. But if we get to the point where we start forgetting these things are toys and they're things that are there to just make people's life a bit more fun, I think we're taking yeah. it too far then. And yeah, Vanquish would have been... Um, it just sounds arrogant as a bike brand name as well, doesn't it? Well, it's kind of crazy, yeah. Yeah, I need to go to market with something like that. I'd much rather go with something that feels well. We did, you know, something that feels a bit more human and a bit more like a there's a person behind it rather than you know a load of automatons. Yeah, 
so how did um how did you start spoon was it uh, like it must i mean obviously you came up with a name how did then how did that then become a bike brand as such like what was the first bike how did that then how did you you know how was that manufactured how did it all start well i made the first one um and it was after a bit of an adventure really trying to get out of my job and into the bike business mm-hmm. um started going to trade shows and stuff and um sort of almost pretending i had an idea and a, a company and went to um eurobike um i think i called in sick maybe Brilliant. Maybe I took a day's holiday, I'm not sure. But I got the flight out of City Airport to Munich and went to Eurobike and yeah. chatted to all sorts of people. And um, I was basically trying to find some really lovely products that weren't available here that mm. I could sort of use and work with and, and perhaps bring to the UK. And that was all it was. It was just this sort of side side hustle thing that I was sort of imagining could be real. And walking around this show, I had loads and loads of conversations with people and met some really, really cool people that had some amazing products. I met this bloke called Manu Osner who had these like awesome braided carbon fiber bikes and stuff like that. I had a long chat with him about perhaps bringing them to the UK and that sort of stuff, but I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> I came back and I had so many more questions than I had answers and I'd seen titanium bikes there for 200 quid shipped and all sorts of stuff. And I just thought, if I'm serious about this, if I want to sell somebody something, I've got to understand it inside out. Yeah. yeah. Um, or otherwise it's just like putting Vanquish on the down tube. It's just, it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. So yeah. it's about trying to learn um, a lot more about bicycle construction and um, just got loads of books in, just got loads of, you know, got on all the forums and that sort of stuff. And the more questions I asked and the more doors I knocked on, um, the more, it felt like a closed shop um, and I in fact booked onto a frame building course and then got the impression from the person who was running the frame building course that I was going to come out of this thing with again more questions than answers so yeah ended up, up cancelling that and then bumped into Andrew Denham at the Bicycle Academy went to see him for 10 days and I just said look I really really want to bring a product to market that's made in steel because I think that makes sense that does um, that does this it's a high performance bike that's relevant that is customizable to suit the rider and can be a little bit more interesting than the black and red bikes that were flying off the shelves at, in Halfords and Evans at the time I just thought yeah. I, I just thought if people are dropping 10,000 pounds on a um, nothing wrong with a tarmac Avenge or any of that but they're dropping 10 grand on a bike and then riding around Richmond Park and seeing five six others like it and you look look at the stickers around the bottom bracket on some of them and they're not even on straight. I just thought, why are people doing this? There's got to be a better way of making a better bicycle. Yeah. Um, Andrew just said, cool, yeah, come and see us. That's completely doable. Like the steel you've picked is the highest tech steel that you can um, you can work with. So you're going to really struggle. Um, it's going to be hard and we're going to have to fit a lot in in 10 days, but come and we'll see where you get to. And um, I came out of that course with with a finished bicycle and that I suppose was was the start of it um it'd been fitted properly it'd been made <laughs> pretty badly but it yeah. um there's a long way between in engineering terms there's a line that's good enough right so something has to be functional um yeah. and it has to be built with to a certain standard in order that it won't fall apart it has to fulfill its need basically and in between yeah. that line and perfection is where we're all trying to be so obviously Trek Specialized, Cervelo, any any brand out there can't build anything that's below that line. And yeah. then the rest of us are all happy somewhere above that line, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your 
personas and um, all of the sort of wonderful sort of romantic brands, um, saffron, that sort of stuff. They're 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 seeking to be as near to that line as possible in terms of perfection. Yeah, and that's sort of where that's where we're trying to play around as well. Just getting make everything as good as it possibly can be. And to do that, I just needed to need to understand a lot more about bikes. Obviously, it didn't stop there. Kept doing um, the learnings always always continuing i suppose um yeah. you're always working on it but who, who has that what where is that original bike spoon number one um where is it right now it's in my workshop in hove oh good i was, yeah. I was hoping you're saying it still exists no no it's never going to be it's, that's never going to be sold in fact the first five six frames um i made a load of development frames i made them all in my size and a sort of that made, helped me sort of manage the risk, if that makes sense, because I figured if this all goes tits up, at least I've got a load of bikes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, that's still in the workshop. And I did sort of swear to myself that I'd never, ever sell it or dismantle it. But um, there were there was a few moments over the last couple of years where a few bits off it have gone on eBay. But the frame is um, the frame is still there, and that's like part of, part of the company history, I think, and that's never going to go anywhere. Um, yeah, definitely. Whilst on that subject, Sam Dunn, is um, very responsible for the success of that frame and the fact that I can um, do what I'm doing today because very simply, if I hadn't found her and if she hadn't painted it the way she did, um, I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have had the start I had. And it was, it was just a really lovely thing. I I had this concept in my mind that we were going to have this sort of tattooed bike and it was going to look really rad. And then um, we're struggling to find somebody that could actually do the artwork and produce the thing and that could see the idea or, you know, can, could could actually do it. And then yeah. I came back from Bespoke on the train um, one year. I'd been with um, Timmy Rowan, I think. Um, him and I were, we were basically in a workshop. He was in his yeah. own workshop. I used to go around there and pester him, basically. Ended up helping him with his, I think it was 20, 2014 Bespoke um, yeah. builds and things. And we got them finished and then took them to... Um, took them to this show and then he won best new builder and best in show and all sorts of stuff. And it was crazy. And I was coming back and obviously at this point I'm like, wow, yeah, dreams come true. This is, this is cool. I've got to push. I've got to push. And then just out of the blue, I'm on Instagram and there's a picture of Clifton suspension bridge um, with this skull in it and this hand around Clifton suspension bridge. And it's just somebody's doodle on the train and it's Sam Dunn and she's just on her way to bespoke. So I a message. I don't know if the trains passed. Let's imagine in a romantic world, maybe they did. But yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I sent her a message and said, you've got to paint my bike. Would you be up for it? And she said, I've just been thinking exactly the same thing. I really want to paint a bike. So she agreed to do it. I agreed to give her a bike. Um, and she spent 38, 39 hours painting that thing. Um, Look at it is a bit right now. It's, it's a cool bike. It looks cool. It yeah, looks- I know Sam really well. Like she did, um, she did some illustrations for Atticus and, Atticus did this like collaboration with uh, Matt Pritchard, the guy that was in Dirty Sanchez. Yeah. yeah. It was all like, um, it was called, the whole thing was like called Sleep When You're Dead. Yeah. Um, yeah I can't remember what the, um, it was fundraising for, for charity. And I can't remember what the charity was for it. But um, anyway. He became like a proper hardcore triathlete vegan super clean and everything like that and um, but she did this illustration of a skull drinking uh like a bottle of water and it had like an atticus cap on it and there's like fires going on it and they did it on a t-shirt 
and they also did like a little um, pins as well, and they did some socks as well, like the whole like a really nice little collection. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Sam did those illustrations, and that just looks so good. He's just amazing, and she. She almost didn't speak to me at the end of the job because she'd spent so much time doing it. I kept checking in and she basically had loads of ideas together. If you can see those pictures, there's loads of little elements on there that mean something to me or her. Yeah. Um, that's why there's a Rancid album logo on there because we, we were just chatting about music and said we both like that. And then awesome. everybody that was involved in that bike is mentioned in some way, shape or form. So we've got Tony Cork who fitted the thing that says talk cycling on something and then Timber is... Paul Burf at BTR's dog, who sat on the under the bench the whole time I was building it. So it's just yeah. it's a really personal thing, and she totally got that. And if you like that experience and that journey and that that um, the creation of that object was really exciting and just made me think other people might want to do this. This has just got to be a good thing. Like I've just had so much fun doing it. Um, I don't think she did because like drawing on tubes is really hard and it just took her forever. And, um, yeah, imagine like turning around the angles and stuff and the yeah. detail. She went off in such an intricate way as well. And just, you know, I, I did actually, I said I'd never do another one the same because why would you? It was a moment in time and um, was feeling the pressure a good while ago now, but was feeling the pressure and somebody said, can they have one? And I called her and said, would you consider doing another bike? And she went, Andy, never, ever again. I'm not going near a bike with a pen ever again. And it, I don't think it was a pen. I think it was acrylic paint and a cocktail stick she used. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's all it's all paint and a cocktail stick. If you look on the head tube, she chipped that all out with a cocktail stick. And then um, Dan Cole finished it for me. And Dan oh, Cole, I, not, I don't think it just started, but um, I just had a whole load of luck with that bike, basically. I went to see him and he was just stoked about doing bikes and being involved in bikes. He thought the project was cool, so... He just went, yeah, I'll help you out. And I think he charged me He charged me something ridiculous because he's probably one of the most sought-after painters in the country now. And he just, he didn't charge me a lot for doing that. And then um, I had my life hit the skids not long after that. And it became apparent that I wasn't going to start the bike company. I was going to start very quickly. And um, in the end, I had to just call her and say, look, you're not going to get a bike. Um, how about we do something else? And um, I can't remember what we did now, but... Um, we had to deal with that in a different way but they, those guys were just they're part and parcel of being custom history really and without that bike and it did go around the world a little bit and I was in the cyclexive calendar and stuff like that and it was just it just gave me enough confidence to think yeah I can, I can probably make some pretty bikes and you know do a reasonable job of this and you need some of that at the start you need I mean, it's not obviously nice to think of those sorts of things as achievements in the round because they're not they're you know, they're just, there's a bit of luck involved, but you've got to take some confidence from some of those things that happen. And I certainly did. And then just thought, all right, let's do this. <laughs> so what, um, and then like, you've done a big series of real, like there's been quite a few bikes that have always stood out to me. Like the Escher bike was like, that was pretty nuts. And then the, the blue, uh, the blue, is it, is that, and it is like an Eves Klein blue, isn't it? On that one. Well, we synthesized Eves Klein blue, but it's, it's impossible to synthesize really. Um, yeah. We had to do a lot of work to work out. Basically Eves Klein blue, just for anyone that doesn't know, he's an artist from Nice and he's famous for covering basically people, predominantly women in blue paint and then having them slide all over the floor on these massive canvases and produced all this wonderful work. He also, used this blue that was associated with the um, 
the sea off Nice, and um, that was became his trademark. That and gold. Um, yeah. Super matte when you when you paint it. Have you seen um, Vantablack? They're down, yeah, the, they're down the road. They paint all sorts of crazy things in this black that just soaks up all visible light. And mate, I, I so Eve's Climb Blue is my one of my favourite colours of all time. Oh wow! And the Vantablack because that was brought up by Anish Kapoor. Yeah. Uh, like it's nuts. Like it's it's so weird to explain it, isn't it? How it absorbs colour, absorbs. Well, not necessarily colour, absorbs the shape of anything. And some of the videos that I've seen of it, when they've like painted a, um, like I think it was like a mannequin. Yeah. Like a, a headpiece or something like that. And you look at it from directly in front and you just, all you can absorb is the outline. But the yeah. moment you twist it, then you start to see the 3D element. Did you also see there's a guy that's created a paint and he's called it the second... Yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. If anybody hasn't read that online, they probably should because that is that's brilliant. Basically, Anish Kapoor was granted uh, an exclusive license for artistic purposes for the use of Vantablack. So no yeah. other artist on the planet can use that product, which sort of goes against some people's principles, I guess, in terms of what art is. Right? It's yeah. to be a little bit more, uh, a little bit more open than that, isn't it? A little bit more democratic. Um, so he set to work making a paint that you could um that he could share with people that was nearly as black and um, yeah. one of the like master strokes in in um the way that he presented that was he said anyone can buy it it's going to be for everybody except Anish Kapoor so um I think he's done the pinkest pink in the world as well pardon I think he's done the pinkest pink in the world as well he's also done the most glitteriest paint as well he's done the pinkest pink and he's done one which is the most glitteriest paint as well it's just genius. It's and it was so funny, because um, Anish Kapoor. The, what's frustrating about like, Anish Kapoor as well, because he very much owns that red as well. That's his red, isn't it? I didn't. I wasn't aware of that. No, but um, yeah. So the red, the, that red tone is one that he he owns the pigment uh, balance for that as well. But like that that blue that blue paint that I mean is, is obviously as close as you could possibly get to it. It's like one of my favorite tones like when I went to when I was in Morocco and I came when I then spent a couple of days in, in Marrakesh uh, we went to the um the Yves Saint Laurent uh museum and like gardens there yeah and tons of like the buildings in the garden specifically not necessarily so Yves Saint Laurent was like heavily influenced by like the colours and like Morocco, the colours are insane there. Like, were you swanning around a museum after you put my bike on top of that minibus for God knows how long and smashed yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. Uh, when I was hobbling around, uh, in uh, yeah, I'll be honest, that bike is it's it did take a beating, it did, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was, um, I went to I went to that museum and in, the gardens are beautiful anyway. There's like a memorial there for Yves Saint Laurent, and um, there's one of the inside the gardens is a series of like museums as well. Yeah, and in uh, one of them, I've posted a photo of it on the Zero Lemon account at some point, and it's basically painted in probably similar tone to what you use, but pretty much as close as you can get to that like the Eve's Klein kind of blue. And he's and all like the plant pots were painted in this blue as well. Um, and the the reason behind it was like it was a color 
in like Moroccan, uh, I guess, kind of villages and tribes out in the mountains. Yeah, it's really there, isn't it? It's like, yeah, it's a pigment that they have, like, and it, they use a lot out there in the fabrics and painting and stuff like that. And and it contrasts so well with like the desert sand and the the color of the 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 rocks as well, which are like a more of an orangey pigment. Like the contrast is like incredible. Well, orange yeah. and blue, um, orange, sort of teal and orange is supposed to be the most, um, as as a colour as a colour combination, it's supposed to be the most. Um, I'm trying to find the right word, but it's supposed to really appeal to the human eye or be the most attractive combination to the human eye. And years, not that long ago, lots of films were graded in teal and orange. Apparently. Yeah, and that's like a big big thing because that's. But I, I remember, have you been to Imshwan? There's a little village called Imshwan in Morocco, or off. No not in Morocco, quite a long way out of Morocco. If you're heading out, if you go straight out to the coast, you can find Essaouira. If you keep yeah. going, there's a little village called Imshwan and it's famous for its fishing boats and they're all that colour blue. Yeah, and, I've not been, but I know that, I know, I've know. i seen photos of it, yeah. There's almost nothing else there, but this huge row of blue fishing boats. It's totally awesome. But that, that colour was, um, that was a bit of a nightmare to try and replicate because it just doesn't, it does exist and you can make it, but the reason it's so matte, it turns out, is because there's lots of PVA in it. Um, and the oh, PVA okay. creates um, the mattified, the mattified sort of look. And we, um, obviously, this chap Andrew Rumble, really lovely guy, works works just around the corner from Orange Road Speed Shop, which was my shop at the time. He came yeah. in. And he wanted to do this thing, and as soon as you start looking at Eve's climb work, you're just like, wow, this is, um, you know, there's some pretty out here, out there stuff, and you know, using sort of paint on a brush on a bike is really tricky. You know, trying to get that then flat is really hard. You probably saw that from the marble thing that we did with your, or that Sam did with your massive attack. But yeah. um, he, Andrew eventually agreed that we should do, try and stick to the blue as faithfully as possible and then just add in some gold and sort of simplify the scheme if you like. And to try and achieve that was just really hard. Sam was, Sam Weeks, who's my painter, he was just, tearing his hair out trying to get this right but eventually when we settled on the right blue you could just tell it was the right blue if that makes sense yeah visually it looked right yeah. he's got a in his mixing room if you like there's a paint system and you you just put drops into the into the cup until you get the um to the right right mix of colors yeah scale that you check that on if it was i don't know a ferrari red it'll say 0.6 of a gram of this and 0.4 of a gram of that and that's quite that equates to four drops or whatever and he just kept dripping in you know a little bit more blue or a little bit more yellow until we got to the point where this blue was messing with our eyes and then there was a moment where we were just like right that's got to be it because we couldn't look at the thing properly anymore so yeah your head and then um once we'd got the base blue we then looked for some sort of super matte matte and um a mattifier that could be used that obviously isn't pva because it would just peel off and we yeah. found them um, in really posh cars, Mercedes, BMWs, that sort of stuff. On the inside of door handles and in the interiors, they use this matte lacquer that's super velvety. And it feels like it's it's used to give a touch rather than a finish. Yeah. Actually really, really matte. So we used that in the end. And um, the effect was just really lovely. Um, did you ever see the actual bike in the flesh? Or No, I never saw it in the flesh. I've just seen, I saw it in Rouleur and I saw it in a few other like photos, but I never saw it in the flesh and I was always just like, shit, that looks amazing. It was totally experimental. The stuff's supposed to be 2K. It's a 2K lacquer, so it's supposed to be as hard as anything else. And yeah. just super up for the job. 
and super up for the challenge of you know you know having this sort of experimental finish on his bike and i had to say to him look if it all falls off we'll we'll fix that you know that's we i can't guarantee it won't because we haven't tested this stuff properly or sufficiently enough and um he just went yeah let's do it it sounds cool and to some extent you need customers like that to come along with you sometimes i mean we don't make bikes with paint that falls off um we never want to be in that position obviously the finishes need to last forever but um sometimes you're just trying stuff that isn't tested so it's nice sometimes when customers just go yeah i really want this thing to be real and then you can run off and find a way of doing it with them somehow sometimes things just kind of stumble together in the right right sense and the right customers allow you to kind of just do it i guess yeah Yeah, you get some people that have got a really strong idea of what they want as well and that's that's a completely different different sort of brief but when you do get when you do get somebody that just says let's just make something knock out and make it weird as hell that's really fun yeah you know it's both are as fun as each other but there's a really lovely moment when you're just scratching your heads together and sort of messing around really and that's what it feels like it doesn't feel like a job very often when you're doing that sort of stuff yeah so then if we then fast forward to geez let's fast forward to like last year this yeah end of last year this year so obviously spoons kind of continued as a brand continue sort of growing you produce these like absolutely stunning custom bikes over the years did you when did you start 2014 something around there um, and so officially, um, company, I think the first bike we brought back, um, I brought back from Montgenev in for a launch at Brooks and that was June, 2017, but I'd been out in France since late 2014, um, yeah. guiding and riding around and trying to get the bikes right. Um, Monty, where I was living is Southern Alps. Yeah. It's, um, 28k from the top of Isward and probably 20k from the top of Sestria. So it's right slap bang in the middle of some really good roads. But that road drops down to Turin and then goes right along the top of Italy. And everybody who's anybody in Italian manufacturing, as you mentioned earlier, is along that road. So yeah, um, I spent a good while just talking to people and meeting people and trying to find people that could do what we wanted them to do. Um, and then we didn't get the first bike back, as I said, until 2017. So it's not, not, we've not been doing it that long. It's yeah. a bit of a, you know. It's exciting though, isn't it? And then, and then now obviously uh, the merger, I guess, I guess it's kind of a merger with Windy Miller that's happened over the last, oh, well, it's probably last couple of months, really. I, I can't remember when it was announced. Oh, yeah. well, we, we started, um, Sam's been painting my bikes for a while. Everything he took to, to bespoke last year, he painted. Yeah. Um, Obviously, I was having contact with the team there and with Chris Horton, who was um, CEO at the time. Yeah. Um, and uh, we started to realise that there was quite a lot we were doing where there was quite a lot of commonality. We were doing more things. We, we were duplicating processes quite a lot. We were both we were both painting bikes and trying to do that in a really lovely way. We were both manufacturing in the same region. We were both, to some extent, albeit slightly different subsets, talking to the same customers. And it just... Mm-hmm apparent we were going to work together at some point and yeah uh, you know it just seemed to make sense and then over the over christmas um chris called me and just said look um i think we can do this and i think we should be working together in this sort of way and i said great okay and um we've been working together since then really so i suppose this tail end of december 
in an informal way and we're trying to get things tied up so it's all formal formal just now but um basically full time full time with them now chris is off doing other bits and pieces but he's on the phone all the time and um he's been really supportive and as has andy bonsall who's my other sort of um he's chairman actually so chris is now in a non-exec role we've got andy yeah. chairman and then there's me and then the team and the team's david and sam and jen and luke and they're just they're just all so enthusiastic i just thought there was a more than more than one moment last year where I thought I've, this is about as big as I can make it now, without need without getting some help in. Yeah, and, um, you know whether it's luck or judgment, it's just the right time. And David, um, David and Sam and Luke and Jen, they all have exactly the same attitude as me, really, in terms of getting stuff right and wanting stuff to go out the door perfect. And um, it's just been yeah, it's just really nice to actually have some people to share the experience with, if you like. Um, there's a lot of weeks where you want to go for a pint with somebody on a Friday because you've had a big week or you've had a bad week and you don't get to do that if you work on your own it just doesn't work like that you have to all those fears and all those worries and all those triumphs they just you can't share them with anybody really nobody else gets it so it's nice yeah. to have you know and so David so with the the team now that you've got this work with you you've got Sam and Luke in paint yeah Jen does sort of like more the back of house stuff of one, right? She's like finance director, to be honest. She's a really good accountant. So she um she keeps keeps a lot of the wheels on in terms of the back office stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, to say to suggest she's doing admin is to, you know, sell her a good way short, a long way short. She's um yeah. fab. she keeps on top of me on stuff as well and chases invoices and that sort of thing. All that stuff when you never know. I don't know if if there's anybody thinking about starting up their own thing, but one of the main things you're not ready for and you don't understand is just how much admin there is to do to yeah. run your business. Just catching up with invoices, tax, accountancy, all that sort of stuff. You just have to get good at that stuff and you spend an inordinate amount of time doing that side of things. Yeah. So someone doing that now is really cool. And then Luke and Sam, obviously on the paint side, they're both like, they're just, they just want to paint bikes. Yeah, and uh, I, I always think of how I always think of Jen is that she's a good egg. Yes, she's yeah. a very good egg. Well, everyone has good eggs at the end of the day. And then you've got David, who uh, is, I guess, kind of does a bit of everything, doesn't he? Is he does a lot of the fitting, uh, the sort of the geom- geometry stuff for the Windy Miller bikes. Um, he does a lot of the mechanic work as well. He kind of seems to do, from what I know, anyway, he seems yeah. to do a bit of everything. That sort of sells him short as well because he's a um, he's an engineer first and foremost. And he's yeah, an engineer. So he's a brilliant, like he's brilliant support for me um, in the sense that Spoon Custom Bikes um, need need that sort of support sometimes. And he's there and he's got solid works and he, he can do he can um, produce um, sort of design engineer anything. He's got a really good understanding of um, bikes and cycling dynamics. Obviously, the SL. Have you ridden an SL, Windy Miller SL? I've not ridden an SL, but I've ridden obviously Massive Attack, the new Massive Attack I've had, and which he he designed, didn't he? Yeah, they're both his both his work, and the SL was the first bike I rode, and that yeah. was the first time for a long time. I've, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I'm not. There's lots of materials you can make bikes out of, and there's good bikes in in there's good and bad bikes in each material. But when yeah. I rode that bike, it's a genuinely like it's a genuinely compliant stiff. You know all those sort of silly words that we use to describe bikes. Sometimes it does all of those things really, really well, and it just feels great. 
Um, yeah. So he's, yeah, he's got loads of engineering now, basically. He's also a really good mechanic and he's just a super, super easygoing guy. Yeah, I've got a lot. I've got, I've, I could chat to David for hours as well. I feel like I'm going to do a podcast with him at some point because he's just really interesting as as, as another person to talk to about everything and anything. And and and, and he can chat. And thoughtful. He does talk for England, but um, which is sort of good coming from me. But he's uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's he also grows a damn good beard. Yeah, he's got a very good. But do you know he makes honey as well? He's got bees in the back garden, which I'm fascinated. I didn't know that, but that's uh, that's good to know because I'm always after local honey. I might have to drop him a message on that one. We drove to Italy. That was sort of almost day one at work, um, if you like, and we got in my van. He turned he turned up to pick me up, and I had flu, like full on flu. You know, sort of. Yeah. Not just man flu. I was I was dying. I had a temperature. I'd been ill for two or three days. There was no way we couldn't go and. Um, see our workshops and you know introduce david and vice versa and do all the work that needed to we needed to do and we needed to get some stuff into production and um we had to go and we just chatted the whole way there about all sorts and that was where the bees came up and all that sort of stuff he's a really good person to talk to when i i remember when i went and picked up my massive attack i met him in the asos store in uh, Regent Street, and we—I was like, I was only going to pop in there quickly to pick it up, basically, because I was rushing around doing 107 different things at once. But I ended up chatting to him for like two or three hours. Yeah, he just knows. He just—he's really, really humble as well. So he doesn't tell you what he knows. He just—it just comes out somewhere along the line. Yeah, we, we, we got to Monty, and we'd been driving all night, and I'd been—I was pretty poorly, just kept knocking back paracetamol every time I got shaky. Yeah, and we got to Mojnev, and all the way there from probably, probably Leon Dan, he was just telling me he was saying, "You've ridden here, you've ridden there," and there was loads of places. Obviously, I haven't ridden. I haven't ridden everywhere in the Alps, but I know it pretty well. Yeah, he, <laughs> he seems to just know more, almost more or more places certainly than I do. He's just, oh yeah, yeah, I did uh, Col de Madeleine a few years ago. Yeah, nice one. Yeah, it's kind of all right. And he's just so humble with the way he describes all those sort of yeah achievements. Yeah, it's really there's a really good core team there now, which is which is fantastic to see. And I I I think is great for both the brands going forward. And like you know, it was um, from my part, it was awesome to work with both of you over the last year. Like it's really cool. We've had a really you know really. I think I, I remember talking to Chris about it, saying that it very much was like friendships for life came out of that as well, which was oh, really really nice and. So I, I guess that leads on to like the next things for you guys. Like obviously I, I'm now I work with, working with Cervelo, which for me was like uh, we spoke about it quite a lot, and I spoke to Chris about it as well. And we everyone was just like, do it, like completely yeah. understand. Like um, we all love bikes, and the idea that the idea that as a small brand we don't sort of get to sort of hang out with you guys for a little while before you go on to something bigger and better is it's just I think that's a totally normal part of the process the process you're going through in terms of growing your your sort of presence in cycling or whatever mm. I think we can Chris Chris and me had exactly the same view on that it's just we were just stoked that you were going to you know presumably you've probably got five bikes now and they you know there's so many more opportunities and all that sort of stuff that we could never have never have been able to like dish out if you like in that way and and opportunities that they'll be able to offer you that we can't do at this stage and it's just nice to see people getting on yeah i said to i remember saying to chris um before 
Maybe, I don't know whether this is podcast content, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Whereas if I if I don't like it, I can just edit it out. So I probably <laughs> I probably won't edit it out. Honestly, I said to quit. I went when when say I I was approached by Savello, which was first of all incredibly flattering. Um, and I was talking to Chris about it on the phone, and I said to him, if I, the only bike brand I would um, consider would have been Savello. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah, like, I've always loved the bike brand. I've always massively respected them. I've always, they're very forward thinking in what they do. And having now in, as a couple of previous podcasts, actually spoken to the engineers as well, like it's made me understand the brand a lot more and realize that, as I said like, to you before we started recording, they're a lot smaller than people realize, which is quite nice to know, actually. Um, yeah. yeah. And yeah, it was incredibly. Yeah, well, they went from they went from nothing to the pro peloton in six years, I think. Yeah, it's nuts, isn't it? I might, I might be a couple of years short on that, but it's still a tiny, tiny amount of time for to have got to where they've got. Yeah. So we'll we're next. So I guess anyway, we could we could go on an event on that one for a while. But like when after, uh, obviously, well, I need to get my head right now because I'm thinking about just bikes all the time. Um, so we've done, we've kind of talked about the merger between Spoon and Windy Miller, how that's going, going forward. You've got this really awesome team around you. Like what's, what's the next kind of plan? What's the next things going on with both of the brands? Well, we're trying to, we're trying to, um, make sure both products are as good as they can be. Um, we're looking a lot, we're doing a lot of work on the customer experience and making sure that sounds really corporate, doesn't it? But it's, um, it's a valid term that's yeah it's sort of yeah when you when you order a custom bike it's there's a journey that you go on to actually then have this thing at the end and it's important for i think it's important for brands like ours to make sure that that experience is as rich and as interesting as possible that's what the customers seem to want they want all these little contact points and and things throughout that little journey that teach them about the bike they're going to own and if they didn't want that they'd have just gone and bought one off the peg and just gone into Evans or something and, and just picked up that black one and paid eight grand for it and left. And they don't want a relationship with that bike shop and they don't, not there's anything wrong with Evans, but you know, there's a sort of, there's a consumerist sort of side of the bike business, isn't there? And then there's this more experiential side and we're on that side. Mm-hmm. And we've, got to make, we've got to make sure that that experience is as good as it possibly can be. Um, these things take yeah. a lot of time and there's got to be little contact points along the way. So we're, we're thinking a lot about that sort of stuff and then details in the bikes. We've got some really, really solid bikes um, on the steel and carbon side. So we're just going to think about how we can make those make those bikes better, even better, if you like, um, by just adding in a little bit of extra detail. And then I think if, I think probably if people haven't been to Spoon Customs or Windy Miller before or don't know much about the brand, I think over the next few months, they it'd be cool if they could come back and have another look. Cause I think we're going to do, we're going to do quite a lot of work that will make both brands a lot stronger mm. um, and make the offer a lot clearer and allow people more opportunities, I suppose, in into the brand and allow people to get more out of the experience of actually owning and buying one. So that's, that's kind of cool. And everybody's on the same page about it. Um, Sam's like meticulous with his paint. David's meticulous with, his, his approach to engineering so it's mm-hmm. just sort of it's just sort of solidifying those things for every little bit of the process i think 
because the bikes are really really good on both sides we've we've done we've done we've been really lucky in terms of what we've been able to do we've been really lucky in terms of the way that um, customers responded to the first bikes for me and then to bikes that have really they've been perfecting for 10 years at windy the sl yeah. attack isn't a mistake that's 10 years worth of work um yeah they started off buying sort of almost um oem open mold frames i, I believe um on a couple of occasions but um since then the massive attack and the sl there's so much proprietary technology in those bikes um all the components almost all the components are all molded specifically for those frames and there's just a lot of engineering gone into them um that doesn't need a lot of work that doesn't need um a complete uh, you know rethink it's all there so I, I think um if anybody's been thinking about the brands or has come across them before it'll be cool in the next few months i think to come back and have another look because we're going to do a lot of work to make sure people really understand that side of things yeah definitely and it's it's you know it's very it's an exciting time for uh for both brands i feel right now like there's so much as you say there's a lot of potential um and lots of uh good positives to come from it definitely and they're, they're both cool brands it's nice they're both british definitely it's a really strong element to both of them and you you know well designed well engineered well thought through bikes so what um with the paint guys how how and obviously they're involved with both they are they're not working at the moment but like the the detail and quality of those guys is, is just nuts they're, and they're very as you say hardcore painters who know their shit yeah i mean sam's been painting harley davidson's forever um for some of the best custom builders and he knows his stuff he used to work for a company called rdc and did a lot of work with them they paint all red bulls gear helmets everything rally cars all sorts of stuff and he's just got loads and loads of technical knowledge but he's also like endlessly creative he did all that marbling work on your massive attack just yeah off his own back i almost didn't I was thinking, oh, it'd be nice to do some marbling. This was before we'd sort of come together. Yeah. Yeah, asking because I knew how much hassle it would be. Um, and I'd never really found the right bike or, or whatever else. And then all of a sudden, he's just in the back of the workshop, just working out how to do it himself. And he's just got one of those, like, inquiring minds and that sort of approach that you need in this sort of thing. If a customer turns up and says, paint that Eves Klein blue, and we just paint it sort of nearly blue or nearly Eves Klein blue, we're not really doing what we're supposed to be doing. And you need people that can help you along with that you know yeah definitely definitely awesome i'm gonna chuck one more point at you which is i i i, I realized i missed it on the last podcast which i feel really guilty about which is with reese so i'm gonna have to have another podcast with reese which will be equally fascinating but i'm gonna ask you your five hacks or tips oh you tips. gave this in advance so this is gonna feel feel a little bit more rehearsed but i made some of them i I really struggled to find five, if I'm honest. So I did Google one. That's why I make it five, because people are like, one or two is easy. It's really hard. I was trying to think. I mean, I'm, you're asking a bloke that's just made a business that sells itself on doing everything the really hard way. So if I, <laughs> if I had the life hacks, I'd probably be applying them. But um, the first one we talked about earlier, and that was fitting a tyre. Now, yeah. it seems really, really obvious, but Tubeless is making this really, really hard. And if you get the bead in the middle of the rim, your tyre will go on. I had loads and loads of people that um, used to come into the shop and often often they would say, oh, I need to fix a tyre or whatever. And I, I quite like I quite like an hour. So I'd sort of help them understand how to fit a tyre. And some people don't know if there's a tube in there or whatever else. There's different levels of knowledge. But the guys that did know what they were doing, 
um, would often say they struggled. And it's just because they didn't necessarily appreciate that the middle of the rim is the shortest way around. And if you get the bead in there, that's that's really good. So get the bead of your tyre in the middle of the rim and you will find that your tyre will go on. And I had to learn that the hard way, unfortunately. How um, did you have to learn it? <laughs> are you going to make me tell you that? Yeah, yeah you get to say the story, um, right? Okay, so I came back from the mountains with a bike in my van and some and needed some parts. And there was a little part on a 3T stem seat post that I needed. And it turned up at 500 on the internet, which is a really nice bike shop in Windsor. And um, pardon? 700, not 500. Oh, 700. Sorry, yeah. I'm 200 short. <laughs> yeah, but okay. Uh, 700 in Windsor. So I go along there to pick up this part. I've called up this guy and spoken to somebody on the phone. I think it was the owner. And they've got this part. By the time I go in there, Rob Odes is in there, who's a photographer. He lives in Texas now. I've just made a bike for him. But he, um, he's, uh, he's in the shop and I've got this part from him. And then I go back to my van. And I think I've got to get these tyres on. They're challenge tyres. They're really tight. I thought I'd just better give it a try. And I don't know if it was the pressure of the next day or just lack of skill on my part, but I could not get this tyre because presumably the bead wasn't in the middle on this rim. And there's loads of tips on the internet and all sorts of other things. One of them is use fairy liquid, which when you use fairy liquid on a tyre, I've never really understood it because you get it all over your hands and it doesn't really work. You make a terrible mess. I didn't have any fairy liquid. So I went in the back of my van. God, believe you to make me say it. Um, so I, I was virtually living in the van at this point I just moved out of the workshop in France and I just headed back and had all my gear in the back of this van the only thing I could find in my bag of toiletries was some strawberry flavoured lube so this goes all over this tyre um, in order to help <laughs> oh man we are, we're going to fall out this is um, <laughs> it's all over the tyre and I'm, I try and get this tyre on and then I break another tube trying to get this thing on and I'm just like oh my goodness now I've forgotten it's covered in lube I'm just worried about the shame of going back to a bike shop and having to ask another chap to fix my tyre for me I've just told him I've got a bike company or trying to make one I've got to now go back and tell him I can't fit a tyre this is hugely embarrassing that's all I'm thinking about Rob then gladly grabs this tyre and starts fixing it and it says it smells nice um, oh yeah and I'm just going redder and redder and redder if anyone knows me I blush quite easily and I'm just like, absolutely be true now. And he just keeps mentioning this smell. And I'm just like, please, just fit the tyre, fit the tyre, fit the tyre. And we're obviously quite good mates now. We get on really well. And I know him really, really well. And I didn't tell him until about six months ago what he was actually, why the tyre smelt so nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we did get the tyre onto the rim eventually. And we did get it clean. And we did get it to Brooks. And the rest is all history, as they say. But yeah, thank you for making me tell you that story. But it's such a good story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. definitely one worth talking about though there's so many little stories that you collate along the way to these little things like people helping you out and I don't know it's, it's just you have to be very grateful when you're trying to do something on your own because there's a lot that um, there's a lot that can and does go wrong and you're very grateful for having people like Rob around who will just you know cover themselves in lube for you you know yeah he's, he's obviously a good human <laughs> <laughs> So what's your, your next tip? Next tip. Um, oh, what else have we got here? Um, finger tire. Get a bike fit. Really obvious one. Um, so many people sit on um, sit on forums discussing with each other, and this is cool. It's part of cycling. But if you're asking all your mates what crank length you should run, you need to go and get a bike fit because there's yep. no point spending 500 quid on a new crank set just to see, to see if you can tell 
the difference between a 170 mil crank and a 175 mil crank. You can't. So go and see a bike fitter. They can work out if you've got a dead spot. They can work out if your crank length is going to change um, change that dead spot or make you more efficient on your bicycle. And it's a really good thing. So we're always pushing bike fit. Obviously, it's a bit self-serving, but get a bike fit. Well, um, I, I am 100% behind you there. Like, I uh, I work with Tim from Swanya, who I'm going to do a podcast with at some point. Yeah. And, oh, my God, the difference it can make to your in, your enjoyment, not just your, like, how you perform on a bike, your enjoyment on a bike, having a good quality bike fit is ridiculous. I've got, are we running out of time? Because I've got two customers at the moment that ex- explain exactly why you should have a bike fit. And no, we can, talk, we can talk as long as you want, mate. Well, they're big guys. And um, one of the wonderful things about bike fit in the custom bike context is you not only get a really good position that's powerful and fits and isn't uncomfortable. Bikes should never be uncomfortable. Yeah, they get up your ass a bit after a while and feel less comfortable than when you started the ride, but they shouldn't really hurt you. These two guys are, are big guys. One's uh, six foot four, I think. He's really tall. He used to be a bowler. So he's slightly like asymmetric anyway, because he's been bowling all his life. So one of his arms is bigger. Yeah. And, um, he's really, really tall. And we had no end of trouble trying to get the bike to work for him on the basis that he's got his current position on his current bike. He's got so much setback. He's right out over the back of the bike. And what I think is nice about the custom bike approach in that context is that you can get you can get somebody in the middle of a bike even if they're a really odd shape so that guy's quite tall and he's not i don't mean he's an odd shape sorry bill he's um he's just a big guy and bikes aren't made for him so if you make a bike for somebody that size and um, yeah. you can put him back in the middle of the bike and that makes the bike feel a bit more magical it doesn't matter who makes your carbon or steel bike really if you start from that position with a really good fit um and then build the rider into the middle of that bike it's going to be more balanced and it's going to handle better and it's going to feel better yeah, yeah, definitely. But I mean, it's such a bike fits are so important. I, I'm a huge advocate and believer of them. Like, and like, there's there's a lot of good bike fitters in in the UK in the world. Um, and you and I like you. I find that like you find someone that's right for you personally as well, and then yeah. build a relationship with that person. And I personally, I couldn't see anyone else now. Like Tim, for me, is like he just is the fact that he understands how I ride, the type of riding I do, and he completely gets that. And that's a very, you know, I mean, I'm I'm probably on the extreme side because of having several bikes and having them all fitted. But Tim's just like, there's atten- attention to detail and making sure that you're as comfortable as you are and can be as possible to do what you need to do. And like, whether yeah. that's racing, having fun, going and beating up your mates on a club ride, not allowed at the moment, but when the restrictions are lifted you know whatever it is like it makes it just makes your feeling so much better definitely the big one is saddles as well crank length is part of it but saddles like bike fitters have a large selection of saddles to try out save a shit ton of money there (laughs) yeah that's true um like the number of times people just buy saddle and tires on a on a kit bike factory bike are always things that are super cheap because you know they need something that's light so you never have any they're, they're just super light ABS plastic normally with some the rails as light as they can get them. The same with the tires, they're kind of just super cheap tires. That's why um, they can win a review with a really lightweight tire on it because it feels the, the wheels feel the wheels are performing well and that's all good. But obviously, you keep that bike for three or four weeks and then realize you're getting a puncture every two minutes, so you upgrade to like a GP5000 or something. 
I do. Yeah. You need to, you need to go and test a saddle that fits your bottom basically. And actually a customer asked me a few days ago, what, what do you reckon to, I can't remember what the saddle was. It was a noseless saddle and there was a really good, maybe the specialized new noseless saddle. Yeah. Um, if it's new even. Um, pardon? The one that's quite short. Yeah, there's a yeah. short length one. I said, look, basically, um, the right saddle is the one that fits you, and we can work on that. And, you know, what we try and do is if somebody does want to try out a new saddle and it's within their dims, you know, it looks like it should work. Um, I just said to him last week, why don't we just send you one? You can stick it on your bike and see how you feel about it and just send it back if it's rubbish. And some of the saddle companies do support bike shops to do that as well, like ProLogo. Mm-hmm. Um distribute through chicken and they they've got a scheme on at the moment so you can buy a pro logo saddle at the moment um and take it for six weeks and if it doesn't fit you you can just send it back and i'll swap it out for one of the others in the range which is kind of cool but you can take a lot of that guesswork out by just going to a decent bike fitter and getting a good relationship with that fitter and then going back you know like you cycling evolves over time you get fitter you get faster you want to check that fit every now and again as well yeah definitely you you uh, like for example prime example is like with me when i herniated the disc in my back we adjusted my fit to accommodate that just raised the front end of the bike up a bit more yeah. slightly changed the position of the shifters um and also on the uh shimano di2 shifters you've got the the i, I don't know what it's called but basically the reach like the reach on them yeah we just adjusted that as well, like just to allow me to not be like my position is quite aggressive, and it's and I'm, and that's and I'm comfortable in that position when I haven't herniated a disc. But then when you know with a herniated disc to allow it to recover, you just like lift everything up a little bit, and it's fine. There's another point there, and that's that an aggressive position doesn't mean a more uncomfortable position. Sometimes the tendency is if people try and do this stuff on their own is to. Um, they've got say a sore lower back, they raise up the front of the bike um, and try and get, you know, short stem or high handlebars or whatever. And you see people with a lot of steer and the handlebars up really high because their back hurt or something. But sometimes the answer isn't to raise the bars up because you're taking weight off your hands and you're loading your lower back and you're probably making the problem worse in some cases. So no bike fear, but sometimes the answer is to stretch them out, you know, and that's the sort of thing a a bike fear can just, you know, work out. It's, you know, easy. You're paying for two hours of time and they'll make your cycling much, much more fun. Definitely. And that's what it's all about. Um, so number four, should we go number four? But what happened to number three? Oh, did we not do three? Yeah. We, 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 okay. Three. So we've done fitting tires. We've done get a bike fit. So the last, the last normal one before I started getting desperate and Googling things, if you have trouble taking a wheel out, check what gear you're in. There's no, <laughs> If there's whoever's listening to this, there'll be loads of people that just know this and they're just going, Of course, Andy. But the number of people that came in my shop in a two year period that said, oh, I can never get the wheel out of this bike, just put shift down to the smallest sprocket and then you can take the wheel out, it'll fall out. You cannot get it in or out if it's not in that gear. And if you do, you're just bending your rear mech hanger and it's a really bad idea. It'll just knacker your shifting. That's a good tip, that one, because yeah, you're right. It's, it's like when you, it's one of, those, one of those things that you know when you're like in cycling more if that makes sense but like especially if you're a new cyclist there's something you wouldn't really necessarily know no one tells you that kind of thing exactly and people some i just found sometimes people just didn't know it's a bit like the bead on the tire or whatever they're super simple things there's no you know things you need to know before you ride a bike and you can google things now and 
index your gears and you should do that. You should try and do that. Um, all these things are now available on YouTube. You can learn loads of this stuff yourself. But there's some really basic things that never end up in those videos that we just assume everybody knows, I suppose. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a reasonable tip. Hopefully that's helpful to someone. Yeah, I reckon so. Go on, we're on four now. Four. Nearly- are we on four? How, how is this four? Yeah, okay. Right, the, this was definitely a Google one. The petrol thing in your car. Did you know that there's a little arrow on the petrol thing in your car? Yes, I did. Yeah, so when the light comes in, it points to where you're... I didn't know this until about six months ago. A bear oh, in mind... First... That's a, such a good tip that so many people don't know. Oh, my goodness. That's changed my life. Above all things, that has changed my life the most. Um, the arrow which points to the side of where your fuel tank is. That's uh, what yeah. you're referring to, isn't it? Yeah, that's so, right. As someone that doesn't own a car and regularly uses like zip cars or like rents cars, like when I go away, I, I quite often rent a car. That has helped me out so much. <laughs> the only reason I know it is from renting, having not owning a car and renting cars quite a lot whenever I need one. I was driving a minibus in France for two, three years and I used to run it on fumes all the time because you'd be doing airport runs and you'd go backwards and forwards five or six times a day. And I used to run it on empty all the time and I never noticed that it was telling me exactly where the petrol pump was and I'd always check and I'd always forget and I'd always get it wrong. So hopefully that... <laughs> okay, you got to, you're on your last one now. Um, uh, the other one's more about friends, I suppose. It's like, I've, there's a bloke called Ted Jones who makes BMXs and he makes yeah. really good bikes and you all need to get a Ted Jones or somebody like it or somebody that you can just call sometimes when you're in the shit and they won't and they won't just they'll just get on with the job for you and they'll just do what you need to do i had to call ted up um this is another sort of story i suppose but i had to call ted up just after i'd moved to france i had um i had a bmx build on the go one of the guys i worked with had said look my son's uh, my nephew is sponsored by harrow i think and he was racing track in london and um, he wanted a freestyle BMX. Oh, sorry, that's a bit old, isn't it? It wasn't freestyle. It was like a you know, street street BMX. Yeah. And, um, he said, can you make me one? I said, well, yeah, but it's going to be hellishly expensive because I've only made a couple of bikes and, you know, I need to I need to go to this workshop and borrow these things and do all this sort of stuff. It's going to take me ages because I'm at work. He went, yeah, cool, no worries. This BMX ended up, it was going to cost a fortune. But then my life hit the skids midway through that build. And there was a moment where I had to either take a call on starting Spoon Customs or just sack it off and not bother and, you know, start feeling a bit better about life and then think what I was think about what I was going to do next. And I worked out in my mind, I thought, if I can build this bike and finish it from ostensibly a chairlift in France at the time, because I just started and work in the ski village, um, I figured if I could get that done, I could prove to myself that this this these tasks could be linked together and we yeah. could get work out the door in a future context. And it might give me some confidence back. And I called up Ted and just said, Ted, I've got a box of tubes. I'm at my wits end with this. I don't know if I could finish this bike. I've said I'll make this bike for someone and um, they really want it. They're not going to, it's not the end of the world if they don't get it, but can you help me out? Can you help me out? And he just said, yeah, send us the stuff. And he's done that on a couple of, couple of things. Um, Granduro, Gringero, never know how to say that. I met him in a car park in, um, Aaron, or just before you go to Aaron to get on the ferry, I took the Gringero bike there. Yeah. We had to make that so fast. It was the one that we based the design for yours on, basically. Short yeah. rear and a lower bottom bracket on yours, a bit more modern. That was based on a 
1994 GT Zaskar monster cross thing. It was just a bit of a laugh, but um, we were so up against it. I couldn't get, I think David had ordered half of the, um, we needed to cut basically ream the head tube. And mm. I think David had ordered the cutter, but we didn't have the right cone to go with it. So I found up hope, hope technology as in, you know, hope, hope, the amazing brand went to their factory and they let me build the bike there. Cause we lost a day as a result of this problem. But then they didn't have a reamer. There's a whole bike factory. They had these amazing things that make the most beautiful carbon fiber parts and this cool wheel machine where you just chuck stuff into it and wheels come out the other end. (laughs) It's amazing. Honestly, if you get a chance to go and visit Hope's factory, they were so welcoming and so lovely. And they gave me a stand in the coolest, what is the coolest bike factory you've ever walked into and just totally looked after me. But they didn't have a reamer. So again, I called Ted. And just said, Ted, are you on the way to this thing? And he sort of grumbled at me and went, yeah, yeah, I'm still building, I'm still building. <laughs> he was literally still, he hadn't even put the paint on his bike, I don't think, at this point. And we were halfway there. And we thought we were going to be late. But anyway, Ted eventually does turn up, drives through the night, doesn't sleep, and um, ends up in the car park reaming this head tube for me so this bike can go on display at Grinjero. <laughs> and, yeah, you need to get a Ted. That's what you need. That's a top life hack. Get a Ted. Yeah. I'll have to um, tag him in it as well. I'll do it as one of the quotes for the podcast, Get a Ted. Yeah. Ted, isn't it? Everyone needs a Ted. And there's not a dull moment either. I mean, I always just think, I know his, his, I know Ted James and this stuff's, Ted is Ted James, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I know the name because he's done, he, I've seen his things in, um, who did I see him through? Um, Cloud Nine, I think. Yeah, yeah, he did. What was it? I think they're his bikes, aren't they? He was building this on it while making some logo, isn't it? Yeah, that's his logo. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's got to be the coolest logo in cycling. Yeah, it's pretty rad, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, awesome. um, yeah. So, in fact, his his BMXs and that sort of stuff, I can remember. I was, I was a bit of a fanboy to start with because I went to TBA and he was there teaching and somebody went, that's Ted over there in the corner. And I was like, oh no, I don't know, I don't know what to say to him, you know? <laughs> but he's actually just an ordinary bloke that helps people out. So you need to get a Ted. Nice. All right, I think we've, uh, we can call it a wrap on that now. That was brilliant. Well, I'm really nice. it. Thank you. It's yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Andy. Like, massively appreciate you taking uh, a lovely uh, Friday, Good Friday afternoon to chat bollocks with me for an hour and a half, basically. <laughs> That's pretty much what we've done. But to be honest, every time we speak on the phone, we seem to do that anyway. So we basically just recorded one of our phone calls. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true. Good. Yeah, it was really fun. It's really nice to actually, um, well, it's nice to have a chat to another human, isn't it, in this context? Yeah, it is, isn't it? We're in a weird world and it's nice just to talk. Well, there is some light at the end of the tunnel, I think. I'd say hopefully people can stick to the rules for a little while and then we'll be out of it soon enough, I hope, I think. Yeah, I think if we all just keep positive and pragmatic and do as we're fucking told, things yeah. will things will come out. I'm just looking at Ted's bike that he did for Grand Jura. It looks nuts. It's so cool. <laughs> Oh, it's bonkers. In fact, actually, look at all those bikes. They're all really cool. There's um, Pi from Clandestine and there's loads of cool Tom Sturdy as well. He's got a really cool bike there as well in that lineup. Yeah. Yeah, they're cool. Nice um, one, dude. Dear Susan, if you can see Dear Susan's bikes, 
Yeah, I know this season. Oh my god, he comes into my local bike shop. Quite, or he did. He used to come to my local bike shop all the time. He's just fab. I drove up to Grand Giro with him, and I've never had such a. I've, that was the most. That's a whole other podcast. That is. <laughs> that was a hell of a journey. He's a character, isn't he? He's amazing. He's a really good engineer as well. Like he, he's a good problem solver. Like there's some people can do stuff, and some people. Um, like you can teach people to use tools and stuff, but proper the best people I've worked with or work around are the people that can really solve problems. Ted's one of them. He's one of them. It's just, you know, you've got to be able to solve problems. David's, David's the same. It's, I think it's an engineer sort of mindset. Did he design a bike for, was it Grayson Perry? Yeah. Yeah. Grayson Perry. He wanted to make the most expensive bicycle in the world. And I think Dan painted it for him. And I think Dan, told me that it was probably one of the most expensive paint jobs he's ever done. Although I think he got involved in the project because it was cool. And then the um, the um, statue that they put on the front of it, I think there was a silver statue or something, and that was what made it the most expensive bike in the world. But Grayson Perry rocks around on it, apparently. Yeah, a, I've seen that. Overblown, massive. It's a kid's bike. It's like a you know little girl's first bike type thing. And it's just huge, and it's just brilliant. And Grayson Perry's obviously kind of cool. Yeah, um, what character? But he gets loads of work like that. Loads of really interesting things. He's made a bike that looks like the London Tube map, and he makes all of these. Um, I'm sort of saying this because I guess most people uh, in in your audience, I guess, probably look at road bikes a lot. But these things are just. I like fun bikes, and I think from my point of view, he makes the most fun bikes out there. Oh, they're bloody bonkers, aren't they? And adventure machines, and it's just really fun. I remember he did a. Uh... A track bike, one of his early bikes. It was a track bike, and it had like the, like the like a rainbow paint job on it. And I always just thought it was really slick because the disc wheel matched as well. Yeah, I mean, he, he's got he's got an insane attention to detail. And if you look at any of his work, it looks crazy. And um, some of it will be experimental, and I don't know how long all of it all of it would last. You know, in some contexts, you know, lefty forks and all that sort of stuff. But some of it's experimental. But he's got he's got the knowledge to make sure those things do work. But then, if you look at the details, they're just utterly bonkers. He thinks yeah. of crazy things. He made that egg event, made a carbon frame with um, Tony Cork, and then painted it in spray bike. He does a lot of work with them, I think, or used to, and painted this really cool scheme on it, and then put a rack on the front with a load of eggs in in the. Yeah, um, I see that one. <laughs> it's just like what. Oh. It's just, um, I don't know, art school, I reckon. Art school and all the fun things that go with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what happened to Quirk as well, wasn't it? He was an art school kid. Oh, well, I like Rob's work as well. He, he does make some beautiful bikes. Yeah. yeah. Well, we could end up going on for a long time. Yeah, I'm we could just gonna... builders we know and love. That would be, be kind of kind of a fun chat. Let's do it as another podcast at some point. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, you can have me back anytime. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up now because I want to go and eat some uh, Easter egg chocolate. Awesome. Well, enjoy that and I'll see you soon. Nice one, dude. Thanks so much. Cheers. Bye. Bye.